Mozart, Mathematics, Kung Fu Panda, and the World of Cybersecurity on this episode of Planet Artside. Hello, hi, welcome to Planet Artside, the official podcast of the Faculty of Arts and Science at the University of Toronto. Each episode, we chat with faculty members, students, and alumni who are coming up with incredible ideas and innovations. My guest today is Kumar Murthy, the chair of the Department of Mathematics here at U of T. We sat down to talk about how mathematics is inescapable. It's a part of everything around us, kind of like the matrix, and that we shouldn't be afraid of it. In fact, math is about more than numbers and letters strung together like alien hieroglyphics. Math is music, it's art, it's philosophy, it's romance, it's the Kung Fu Panda. So I invite you to take the red pill, stay in Wonderland, and let Kumar show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. This is Planet Artside. So let me start by asking, the theme for the Department of Mathematics at U of T is, it's all about math. So what does it's all about math mean to you? Well, in a sense, um, anybody who spends all their time thinking about mathematics and mathematical discoveries and innovations and research and teaching, for them it's a natural thing to say it's all about math. That's uh, that's common. But right now, I think the meaning that's associated to it is both uh, mathematicians, uh, researchers in mathematics internally, and people outside, so to speak, of the field are beginning to realize the importance of mathematics and the way mathematics impacts on their activities. Even if they had not at first thought of their activities as being mathematical, uh, just the changing nature of the world, the increased digitization of everything is uh, making mathematics uh, appear in all sorts of areas. So the, the expression, it's all about math now, is a recognition of that fact that math is in all things. So can you give me an example of it's all about math being in the everyday, in the everywhere? Well, for example, take Google. I mean, how every day, I think pro- probably we all do at least one search on Google or some equivalent search engine. Well, do we realize that whenever you do that, you're applying linear algebra? Underlying the Google algorithm is some basic mathematics. Uh, the mathematics is not uh, so difficult that, uh, you know, it could be explained quite easily in a beginning course on linear algebra. So it's not that hard to understand, but it's extremely useful. And so whenever you, you apply this, this uh, search engine, you're using math. Whenever you play a CD, uh, when you ever listen to a CD or watch a DVD, you're applying math. And if you were to press me and ask, what math are you using? And I were to start explaining it, you'll be surprised at how abstract it would sound. So it sounds abstract, uh, and it, it's something that mathematicians use a lot, and yet it has this very concrete implication in realization in things like CDs and DVDs and satellite transmissions and many other things besides. So uh, like that, we can multiply examples that practically all of the technology we use nowadays, uh, from the simplest to the most sophisticated, is using math in some essential way. I mean, you, have to, you can't build a table without using math. Right. That's right. So from the simplest thing like measuring something uh, and making sure your measurements are accurate and that they fit together correctly, that's right. 
um, whether it, you know, it's working with wood or some other material, or whether it's working with a 3D printer you know, to, to actually uh, uh, to print an object. Uh, the, the importance of measurement is going to be there. And then from explicit concrete measurement, we can make this more and more and more abstract. In some sense, you can, you're correct in saying all of mathematics is a kind of measurement, but the measurement, be, what it is you're measuring becomes more and more abstract, and what it means to measure also becomes more and more abstract. But, but uh, it, we never lose sight of the fact that even in the midst of all that abstraction, it always connects back to something very concrete. Now, most people go through life, especially when they're in school, and they either really enjoy math, they get the numbers, they understand it for whatever reason, and then there's the rest of us who kind of fear math. Which kind of student were you? <laughs> I actually liked numbers. Yeah, I was quite comfortable with them, and I enjoyed them. And uh, I remember that uh, when I was a young student, I wished there was nothing but math in the curriculum. Uh, it took me a long time later on, when I was in uh, past graduate school, that I started uh, appreciating and enjoying and understanding the importance of things like music and literature and poetry. And, so and yet, yeah, math plays a role in music and literature and poetry to some extent. It does, but but you know, it it does in a naive sense. For example, if you t take somebody like Bach, you know, you've got point and counterpoint, and you can measure the beats and the meters and so on. But I think the if you really want to understand the uh, relationship between uh, a very artistic, aesthetic activity like music and mathematics, you really have to look more deeply. Uh, I find it most in Mozart rather than in Bach. Um, so the, the, the relationship is, is essentially mystical. And uh, so let me try and explain what that means. You see, Whenever you try and create something in any artistic or creative activity, there's a part of you where par, there's a part of that activity where you reach deep within yourself. It's not rational. It somehow fits together and it just happens. Especially in Mozart, we see that. And other works of genius, we find that, that somehow things come together in mysterious and inexplicable ways. But once you've expressed it, everyone acknowledges this is something uh, really impressive. Mathematical discovery actually is the very same kind of activity. The same kind of creativity? Exactly the same kind of creativity. Uh, only thing is that the language in which you express that creativity is different. You see, one can be creative, but then one can be creative, but then you've got to express that creativity. You know, if you've got a brilliant idea and you stop there, I have very, I have a lot of difficulty in understanding what is your idea and why is it so great. You have to somehow express it to me. The way we express it is through language. Now you choose your language. You choose the language that is most appropriate for your idea. If you have a flash of musical insight, well, the language to express that is through music. And if I have a poetic insight, the way to express it is through poetry. Uh, if I have an artistic insight, the way to express it is through an image. Similarly, mathematical insight has its own language, and that language is called mathematics. And so to express that insight, you have to use that language. And now to, if you want to understand what it is I'm saying, you have to be conversant in that language. Just as now, if I, if I quote a beautiful piece of poetry in a language that you don't know, 
you say, yeah, well, you know, I'll need to still explain to you what is the beauty of it and so on. But if we share a common language, then immediately you'll react to it. You see, even, uh, and it's also not just the same language, but it's the nuances in the language. Say, for example, we all know English. But without a kind of sensitivity, sensitizing and training, you know, if I, if I read something from Shakespeare, I may or may not appreciate it. I know English. And it's, it's true, it's archaic English that he's using, or medieval English, but, but still, even uh, accounting for that, I need a kind of sensitivity or insight into that language before I can share with you your delight and your appreciation, your aesthetic experience in, in that uh, work of art. Math is like that, and it seems to me that the relationship between math and music is, is that, that kind of deep mystical level where there is a kind of creativity that is trying to express itself, um, and it has to be done in the right language. There's another, by the way, point of contact between music and mathematics. Um, so I have a musical insight, and then I want to express it to you. Well, I have to do it through musical language, which is notation, musical notation. Musical notation has to be precise. When you write down notation, you, it has to be precise. And if I'm trying to reproduce uh, the music that you, you've composed, I need to reproduce exactly the notes that you, uh, you've uh, written down. Mathematics is like that. I write down an equation. It has to be precise. It has to say exactly what it means. There cannot be any ambiguity in it. At the same time, the uh, just as music is not exhausted by reproducing the notes, mathematics is not exhausted by reproducing the formulas and the symbols. You see, so for example, a beginner can play Chopin and uh, a virtuoso can play Chopin and you know the difference. And you say, what is the difference? Here's the score, here are the notes, it's exactly the same notes, both played the notes correctly, and yet one is a virtuoso and one is a beginner. That tells you there's something more to music than the notes. There's something that is hidden, that creativity, that human creativity, that human spirit that is trying to express itself through the um, musical notation is there, but you have to somehow gain depth that allows you to see behind the notes. And a mathematical formula is just the same. The formula is precise, it uses unambiguous symbols, and if I wanted to explain a proof of this to you, it has to be absolutely correct. And if I made a mistake in it, you would say that's not math. But it's not enough. There is something behind the symbols, which is the aesthetic experience, the aha experience of the person who discovered it. And that's what you're really trying to get at. And that makes all the difference. You see, just as we had the beginner uh, pianist and the virtuoso, Similarly, you can see a, a beginner in a mathematical field um, trying to explain, a, you know, read a paper and trying to explain it, and an expert, a master explaining it, it makes a world of difference. You see, so there is something intangible, something that is very human, very aesthetic, uh, very artistic creation experience that is trying to express itself. And it may, it, you know, if, if you think in mathematical terms, you try to express it in mathematical language, it's a mathematical discovery, or if you're a musician, you may express it in musical language. But that, that subtle thing, aesthetic experience behind, is something which transcends language, and that is what we're all looking for. And that's why, by the way, if you talk to experts, 
and you show them some uh, a proof, you, 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 or just watch or listen mathematicians talking to each other, they use words that you wouldn't normally associate with a subject like mathematics if you're not in it. They will talk to each other and somebody will write down something and the other person will say, that's beautiful. Or you show them a proof and you say, that's a beautiful proof. Or that's very elegant. Now you may say, you know, looking at math from the outside, you may say, well, a formula is a formula. It's neither elegant nor beautiful. It's just a bunch of symbols. Ah, but then so is music. Music is, uh, if you don't know how to read it, if you don't know how to play it, it's just a bunch of symbols. But you have to know how to play it. You have to know more than how to play it. You have to know what is the spirit that the composer is trying to convey and somehow in some intangible way reproduce that. And then you understand the beauty and the aesthetic experience. Math is an intensely human activity. No matter how um, <clears throat> uh, the language may seem un inhuman maybe for, for someone who doesn't understand it, but it is an intensely human experience. And, uh, and I would urge anybody who has this kind of fear of mathematics, you know, um, or, uh, or a, a kind of view of mathematics as somehow dehumanizing or um, not uh, suitable for somebody with an artistic or aesthetic bent of mind, I would urge you to hang around people who are doing math, you know, who are creating math. Listen to their words, listen to their language, listen, to, uh, watch their body language even, the way they move their hands, you know, it is, it is artistic. There is something else going on there and that you will only pick that up if you keep the company of people who are doing these things. Even as you're speaking, I mean, you're using your hands like a conductor almost, <laughs> in, and not in, not in the way that people use their hands when they talk. There are hands talkers out there who are constantly gesticulating when they're speaking. The way you're expressing, if I was not even to listen to your voice, there's a conversation going on as you're sitting here in the way you're moving your hands and your body is moving. Right, so this is, a, this is the point, that when we are trying to convey deep ideas, Sometimes words are not enough. You know, our facial expressions, our intonations, uh, and you're right, our body movements, our body language, all of these are, are our struggle, our attempt to communicate something very deep and profound. Well, let me ask you then, these insights that just as, as Mozart or Chopin or whoever was trying to convey a particular insight, a particular piece of creativity through their music, you say mathematicians do the same. What piece of creativity, what insight have you tried to convey through your work? Can you give me an example of something that you envisioned and you needed to express it through mathematics? So here's an interesting thing that uh, sometimes the things that we consider the most beautiful or most profound experiences of our own may or may not be seen in the same way by others. So if you ask me that question, I can of course tell you uh, times when I have felt I've had that experience and I've communicated it and I, with no guarantee that others would feel the same way about it. Of course. So uh, I have found in certain, um, certain instances where uh, I've tried to understand the work of others and in trying to understand the work of others, I found some missing link that sort of brought many different things together. And uh, concentrating on that link and trying to express that, it, it became uh, congealed, as it were, into something very simple. 
very, very simple. And uh, after stating it, it would look almost obvious. But that that principle is what was holding all these different things together. Uh, and I think in, in my career, I've had a few such um, uh, experiences of that kind. And they are, of course, some things I would treasure very much. Can you tell me about the first time you had such an insight? And perhaps not the details of what it was, but the <coughs> feelings you had when you were arriving at this particular insight and what it meant to you. Sure. So, so when when I was growing up, um, I was fortunate that uh, I had a sibling. My my brother who was slightly older than me, also interested in mathematics. He's also a, a terrific mathematician in his own right. He's a well-known mathematician. He's a professor and chair at uh, of the Department of Mathematics at Queen's University. We won't hold that against him. <laughs> Uh, and um, uh, an excellent expositor and educator. He's written more than a dozen books. Um, so anyway, we were uh, when we were young, we were studying some popular science books, uh, and there was a book by George Gamma, who was a popular science writer, and the book was called One, Two, Three, Infinity. No, it's a well-known book. Yeah. yeah, I know the title. So there, uh, if I remember correctly, in that book, he was trying to explain to us about an old formula of Euler, uh, the so-called vertices, uh, if you have a, a, a polygon, uh, not a polygon, a certain polytope uh, or, a, or a higher dimensional object, actually he was talking in terms of three-dimensional objects, the number of vertices minus the number of edges plus the number of faces was a constant. It's two, in fact, independent of of um, which polytope you took. I'm going to nod like I know what that means. Okay. So it, it's easy. I mean, if, uh, if we had a board, I could actually show you examples of that. Um, and in that uh, book, uh, Gamow asks something like, what would a four-dimensional cube look like? You know, and so this works for a three-dimensional cube. What would a four-dimensional cube look like? And then he makes it. And we thought, well, yeah, that's interesting, a four-dimensional cube. But what if then you did the same kind of uh, formula? You know, just like vertices minus edges plus faces, and then the next level of um, uh, simplex. Would you still get a constant? And we we were surprised that you did get a constant. And then that asked that we just kept asking that question: Could we generalize that? And we eventually ended up with a proof uh, that this thing is a constant. It's only much much later in life. I I was very pleased with that way that uh, we had taken sort of two facts which seemed disjoint and then put them together and then generalized it. And how old were you then? Uh, I was about um, eleven or twelve. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, rather kids are out playing in the in the schoolyard. You're creating a proof. So um, much later in life, I discovered this thing has a name. It's called the Euler characteristic, and it's something that's studied in topology. But of course, we didn't know any of those things in those days. Uh, and so that's an experience of discovering something on your own. And, and notice, by the way, you're asking me this so many years later, and it comes up in my mind. That shows you that what you discover for yourself uh, wherever you've had that aha experience, that aesthetic experience, it makes a deep impression on you. It stays with you. Well, it's always better to to experience something, to discover something for yourself, or to try something for yourself than Absolutely. just be told this is the way it right. is. Absolutely. That's that's also, by the way, why we're trying to introduce this whole discovery-based uh, teaching methods uh, in our courses in our, in to help students discover uh, on their own. You see, even if it's a little fact that they're discovering, even if what they're discovering was known for hundreds of years, it doesn't matter. For them, it's new. It's a new discovery. And then it stays with them. Uh, I find that's very effective in mathematics. 
Um, only thing is, it is difficult to do in huge numbers. So we're able to do it when, when our numbers come down a little bit. I tried it with a first year course. Uh, we have a uh, first year course, one math 157, which is for the specialists. Um, and so one day I took them all for a tutorial. You know, normally tutorials are, uh, there's a TA who answers questions uh, based on the assignment and so on. And uh, in this instance, we decided, hold on, let me, let's see if we can do things a little bit differently. So I took uh, sort of the cue from uh, the experimental lab. Say you, say you took a physics course, mm -hmm. you have a physics lab, so you have a lab book. And in that lab book, every week they give you a certain experiment. This is the apparatus, this is the experiment you're supposed to do, and then this is what you're supposed to measure, and you're supposed to analyze it and write a report. So I, I wondered you know, whether we could do something like that in math. So what we did was we, we put together uh, three or four problems which dovetailed into each other. So each one will enable you to solve the next one. And at the end of that series of problems, you would have proved something which if I had asked you to prove it at the outset, you would have, it would have been very difficult. But by taking you step by step through these things, you, you're able to do it. So we said, okay, here's the lab, mm -hmm. uh, and we're going. You can work in groups, just like in a lab. You work in groups. You can work in groups. You can use the internet. You can use your book. You can talk to each other. It's the, the great thing about <coughs> science, the sciences, and mathematics, where collaboration is crucial. Absolutely right. And uh, we even made cookies and uh, uh, coffee available. Oh, cookies and coffee! <laughs> I'm there, I'm, Kumar. I'm there. So with the with the idea that you know. How is math actually done? You know, if if uh, if I want to do a solve a problem and I'm I'm stuck, then I call you up and say, Barrett, let's talk about this." And then we we try to figure it out, and then we get stuck again. And we go, "Let's get a coffee," and we get a coffee, and we keep staring at it until we work it out. We get an idea. So I wanted to recreate that kind of environment of collaboration and discovery. Students loved it, I think, and uh, we could do more of that. The only problem is that our uh, the numbers of students that we teach is quite large, and so we still need to find a way. Perhaps there's a novel way of using technology to enable that. But I, I really am very much in favor of this discovery-based uh, learning techniques. I'm going to go back just for a second. You said you know you pretty much loved math from the beginning, but at what point did you recognize, or were you self-aware? math was something that you were really into and really understood in a way that others didn't perhaps or in the way your school friends loved reading or english or or chemistry or other other things or baseball your math was it for you did you have a, an aha moment as a child when you went uh, i love math interestingly enough i did and uh, again it's uh, these kind of things happen in your life and uh, they have such an impact that you remember them many decades later so I remember um, we were uh, we spent one year as a family in uh, the Sudan, in Khartoum, and uh, I had been studying here in in uh, Canada in Ottawa before, uh, uh, in the usual public school system, and we went to the to uh, the Sudan, and um, I found I was behind in math. <laughs> they were actually going much faster and doing a lot more math. So I ended up working harder to catch up. Well, by the uh, you know, within a, the year that we were there, I did catch up. Not only did I catch up, I be became quite good at it. Right. And I remember that uh, we were writing um, the final exam in mathematics. And uh, by that time, uh, it was 
it went quite well. And after the exam, I, I remember distinctly standing on the veranda of the of the school, telling my uh, friend that I had made a decision that I was going to become a mathematician. <laughs> and how old were you then? Uh, again, let me see. That was about eleven. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> now, from that aha moment for you, and the discovery learning that you want that you're doing with undergraduate students here, mm-hmm. how can we bridge so that other students in elementary school, in middle school, in high school, have that kind yeah. of positive math experience where mm-hmm. a math class isn't just something they have to do because they're required to, where they actually find enjoyment and maybe discover their own little aha moments that maybe yeah. they don't go on to become mathematicians, mm-hmm. but at least they don't come away dreading math, yeah. hating math, or not recognizing the importance of a math education? This is a really, really important question. I mean, I, I think this is a kind of a endemic social problem, people being afraid of math. And so we really do need to address it. Um, but before we get there, I, mean, I want to make one point to sort of balance this whole idea of discovery and the aha experience. There is also um, a part of, of learning math where you just have to learn it. Uh, language, for example, you have to learn basic language skills uh, and you have to learn basic numeracy skills. These are sort of just very, very important in society. And so part of that, in, especially in early days, is a, is a lot of practice. Just as a, how do I master a language? By using it. We have such things called language immersion. Mm-hmm. It just forces you to think in that language, speak in that language, dream in that language, and that's how you get good at it. And math is similar uh, you have to, at some point, you have to immerse yourself in it and just do a lot of math. And then you become, you start getting better at it. And, and when you're kids, you're, you start enjoying what you're good at, basically. Absolutely. <laughs> so that's one part of it. Now, but, but you can't continue that forever. As, as, uh, youngsters mature, then they, they want reason or they want, uh, they do have this kind of feelings. I like this and I don't like that. And then you have to sort of t- tap into this whole business of the aha experience and the discovery base. So I would say that doesn't come right at the very beginning. At elementary school, I would still say practice is the most important uh, thing to do, solve a lot of problems. As you grow older, now you see people start um, you start seeing the differentiation in personality. Some people like the math and you don't really need to explain anything more. And some people want to know, why am I studying this? But the same people who are asking you, why am I studying math, don't ask, why am I studying history? Maybe they're in love with history. So you see this differentiation happening. Now, our system probably is not uh, sensitive enough to all those differences. But if we were, what we would try to do is at that stage, we'd, we would try to figure out those who like math for math's sake, you approach them in one way. And those who want to, you know, further explanation, then we try to approach, you know, through the thing they love the most. <clears throat> and the fact that math is now being used in so many things is what, what would capture their imagination. You know, people, even young kids, you know, would, would listen to music, they listen to their iPod or other device. And um, maybe we can start explaining you know, how did how did this music get onto your little device and how is it managed, and through that lead them to understanding that there is math math sure. and everything or video games video you. games absolutely. By the way, what you made an absolutely uh, crucial point here, namely that we uh, there's, there's a difference between 
learning math to become a mathematician and learning math just to appreciate it. Similarly, like we, we go to concerts and enjoy music. We, we may not be able to play a single note, but we enjoy music. So I think it is possible to bring uh, more people to the awareness that mathematics is, there's something to be enjoyed, something to be appreciated there without themselves being a mathematician. Well, that's the second part of the bridge, you know, beyond the aha moment and the immerse, immersing of the students in mathematics and fostering hopefully an enjoyment of math. You have the students that at a certain point, whether it's in middle school or in high school or even university, they wonder, well, how is this going to pay dividends for me? How is this going to help me pay my bills, you know, develop my career, etc.? What role will it play in my life, whether in on the job or even in my life outside of my career, but that helps me on a day-to-day -day basis? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And fostering that understanding that this is math's role in that, whether you understand, you know, the complexities of the most, you know, you know, uh, in-depth proof mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's out there, or whether you just understand enough to, you know, do your income taxes, yep, speaking yep. of, given that it's yes. you know, <laughs> early March now and we're all thinking about that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's that leap that, yes, we're not creating, yes, an army of mathematicians necessarily, but we want to create people who have an appreciation for, whether on a creative level or even an, I need to know at least this amount of math in order to be successful mm -hmm. in my day-to-day -day life. Right, right. Well, you're seeing more and more jobs, you know, are being, uh, the job qualifications are being rewritten. One needs to have some kind of digital awareness. You know, let's take a step back, even forget about math. You see, uh, you see how computers have invaded everything that we do now. Uh, what if you were to go into a job and uh, you say, um, you know, I want to be uh, an administrative assistant, you know, uh, well, they say, can you uh, type a letter? Oh, yeah, I can take shorthand. I can, um, I can, I can just show me your IBM Selectric. And I can <laughs> <laughs> IBM Selectric. Yeah, I'm oh. sorry. We don't have typewriters anymore, and we don't take shorthand. And I expect you to, you know, use uh, Word or some some equivalent Excel. Excel yeah. And you see, so you can see the reaction of the employer if you say, I don't really use computers. It just doesn't happen. So things have changed already. Now, math, the role of mathematics in this may not be as obvious, but it's somewhat like that. It is getting there closer and closer that you have, for example, everybody wants evidence-based uh, approaches to something. You cannot simply say, uh, this is my belief that this is the way we should do things. You know, people want to say, what's the evidence for it? Uh, and so gathering that evidence, analyzing that evidence, presenting that evidence requires at least a minimal amount of mathematical ability. Uh, the uh, comfort with fluency with numbers and uh, the ability to present those numbers, not to not necessarily to prove profound theorems, but at least to make your case that you see, if I do this way, it's going to cost us this much, and if I do it that way, it's going to cost us this much, and so this is a better way than that. Even to make such arguments, you're going to have uh, some level of comfort with uh, with mathematics and uh, numbers. And so, uh, and, I, and those are simple examples. And if you go, you know, into any more detail about the different kind of careers people have, then you will see that it's more and more like that. Uh, more and more, it's getting into the area that either I myself have to get in and play with the numbers, or I have to be comfortable enough to be able to ask somebody who's an expert and say, Here are the, here's the raw data, help me analyze it. 
uh, help me make something meaningful out of it. So it's going to be like that, and it's going to be more and more of that kind. You know, Thomas Friedman has his book uh, about the flat world, mm-hmm. and uh, what he says is very interesting. Uh, in that that book, which is quite big, there are three pages dedicated just to mathematics. So <laughs> those are the three pages I read the most closely. <laughs> uh, but what he says in that is that um, in the future, it won't be the case. The question will not be whether you will get um, a better job or, or not if you don't know math. But the question will be, will you get any job if you don't know math? That's his projection for the future, that it'll be so much into every single job. Just before, now we were talking about you know, carpentry, uh, building a table, but it'll be like that in practically everything, that you simply cannot escape uh, a certain degree of comfort in dealing with uh, numbers and numerical objects. Um, so therefore, from the point of view of getting a job, uh, making a living and so on, a degree of comfort with mathematics is necessary. But but I don't want to leave it at that because then that will leave you with the impression that somehow uh, math is here only to help you make a living. No, mm-hmm. but remember we also had this discussion about the aesthetic and artistic aspect. It adds something to your life. You know, imagine a life without music or a life without art. Well, to some people uh, actually do fall into that category. They may not, sure, be, sure. They may not be interested, but, but most of us are, are uh, interested in these things and we want to have some exposure. We, we may not go overboard with it, but we want to see a, hear a good concert and we want to see a new, if the AGO has a new exhibit, we don't like to go and see it. So these things, we, th- we feel they contribute, maybe intangibly, but something essential to the quality of life. Uh, that's something essential to the quality of society. And so there is also that aspect of uh, mathematics. It's not just the, the nuts and bolts of uh, of doing this, this activity or that activity, but it's something deeper also about the human spirit. Uh, and again, we don't have to be uh, so expert that we do it ourselves, but we can enjoy it. And so therefore, this is the answer to people who say, why should I... Uh, pay attention to mathematics or have anything to do with mathematics. Well, you do need in your job, but it's also part of your humanity. It's part of your uh, who you are as a human being, and so you cannot run away from it. It's rather you have to embrace it, and 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 once you embrace it, you'll find it's actually very enriching. Well, one of the things I appreciate about math uh, is that it's and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's truly a universal language that is spoken the same around the world in the sense that a a formula here, a a theorem here in Toronto is the same as a theorem on the other side of the planet in Russia, China, England, Australia, that you look at it and it's you as a mathematician can speak, speak the same language as a mathematician from anywhere else in the world. Right, right. And your understanding when you come to a problem to mathematicians from... University of Toronto and the University of Melbourne in Australia would come into a room and face the chalkboard with a problem and be able to have a meaningful collaboration over that problem. That's absolutely right. You're right. There is that universality in it. Um, But two comments on it. Firstly, um, it's true that when when something is written down, uh, it means the same, whether you're in Toronto or Melbourne. But, um, But don't forget, we also discussed that it means the same, but it may, one person may see more in it than another person. 
even though it's the same symbols and it means exactly the same, uh, one of those people may be, as soon as they see it, realize I can do something more with this. I can prove the next theorem. And some, some insight flashes in their mind. That's one point. The second thing is, yes, it is a universal language, but remember one point of caution. No one language captures the totality of the human spirit. And so languages, the reason we need many languages is because there are different kinds of things you can express in certain languages. Certain languages are more suited to certain things than other things. For example, music is better suited for emotion. You know, it, it is easier to express feeling through a piece of music. Uh, on the other hand, a, a formula is a, it requires some training before before you get emotional about a formula. Right. So, so you have to understand there's this uh, I, this what I call the uncertainty principle for for languages. You know the Heisenberg uncertainty mm -hmm. principle yes. in in physics. But I I sort of use the same expression to say in in um, language also there is an uncertainty principle. The two things we're trying to balance are precision and breadth. So precision means when I say something, uh, it is unambiguous. And breadth means the range of ideas I can express in a language. Now, the reason human or spoken languages like English or languages like music are able to express such a breadth of ideas is because they're ambiguous. You see, mm -hmm. if I say something, the same word, it could mean many different things. Partly it's the way I say it, but even if you didn't have it, even if it was written down, you know how people read the same text and understand different things from it. So that ambiguity is actually important. It's because of that ambiguity that you're able to express a broader range of ideas. In math, we took the other extreme. We said precision is absolutely important for us. Okay, So what we write down means only one thing, but we, we did it at an expense the expense of breadth. There are some ideas that you cannot write down in a formula. Cannot write down love, for example, or feelings in a formula. We so that that is an accepted limitation. In order to get absolute precision so that the person in Toronto and the person in Melbourne understands the same thing by these formulas, we paid a price. And yet we have dating websites who use an <laughs> algorithm and a formula to try and match people up now that's and try a, and reduce emotion, friendship, love to a mathematical formula. Right. So this is actually a another important theme uh, that you've raised. It's an extremely important theme, the misuse of mathematics, I would say. Uh, it's, it's becoming very important now, especially with the explosion of this big data, you know, mm -hmm. data analytics, uh, that somehow you can, uh, you can analyze the data and come up with a number or a quantifiable uh, um, uh, parameter and on that basis make a decision. This is wrong. This is fundamentally wrong. And data science does not advocate it. You must always take that as one, one data point, as it were. And now it still needs the human being to interpret the meaning of that data point. For example, suppose I have a thermometer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I, I take my temperature, I get a number. Well, I need to know something to make sense of that number. Is it normal or is it not normal? You know, and then you say it's showing, oh, but it's showing 40 degrees. This guy must have a fever. Yeah, but except that he's standing right near beside a fire. So, I mean, the point is it requires there is something more. The, the number is just a number. It's not an answer.
And so this is a big danger now with the explosion of interest in data analytics and data science that uh, people will apply it unthinkingly. So my view is that none of these algorithms give you the final answer. They give you uh, uh, an insight. And just as you're, for example, uh, driving a car and there are various gauges and parameters being shown to you, you've got to interpret what that means. You know, the uh, fuel is showing near empty. Well, an experienced driver will know how much further can I go with this. You know, it doesn't mean I have to immediately run to the gas station. And it's all relevant in terms of how close you are to a gas station. If you're on the 401, it has a different meaning than if you're downtown. Absolutely. So, so therefore, all uh, information is, are, these are tools. that You should think of them as tools for the human being uh, who then has to bring the wealth of their experience and knowledge and understanding to bear on interpreting what those tools are telling us. They, they are not a final answer. So this, it, it is, from my point of view, uh, deceptive to say that somehow everything can be reduced to, uh, to a number. Remember, the human spirit is superior to everything. There is nothing that um, can capture or exhaust the uh, potential of the human spirit. And it's because of that, actually, that life is meaningful. It's because of that that civilization and human society is so rich and will continue to be rich, no matter how much the degeneration or, or the challenges uh, that we face. Um, uh, the as long as the human spirit is present, you will find it can rise above all these challenges. It can. Uh, it is greater than all these challenges. All these other things that we take, whether they're challenges or opportunities, they're simply tools. They're tools. Uh, they're not equal to the human spirit. So it sounds like you're not concerned about the singularity and artificial <laughs> intelligence and Skynet and, and, and robots taking over the world. Well, I am concerned, in fact. I am concerned, but I'm concerned in the same sense that we were concerned about nuclear weapons and with the same way that we're concerned about global warming. It means now, uh, let, us, let us demonstrate our intelligence. Uh, in recognizing these problems and solving them before they overwhelm us. So uh, artificial intelligence has a role to play. But again, just as this misuse of numbers, you know, if we get let it get out of hand, then we'll pay the price for that. Um, same thing with global warming. Will we be able to solve the problem before it's too late? I don't know. I don't know if we will or not. But the human species will survive, so we'll find out a way maybe to live in space or we'll find a way before it gets too late to... To, uh, to do geo, geo uh, what is it called, um, uh, engineering on a, on a global scale, uh, maybe there'll be some way. But, but the point is that these are things to be afraid of. They're major challenges to humanity. All I'm saying is that the human spirit has the power to rise above all these challenges, but it requires our collective will. We have to work together to do that. So math is important. It is all about math now, but Greater than math is the human being and the human spirit, and that is what trumps everything. You know, all ac other activities are only feeding into that—the discovery of the uh, greatness and the nature of the human spirit. You sound like a very philosophical, spiritual person. <laughs> Do you have a belief beyond the corporeal world? Are you a, a religious person? Uh, I am. I think I prefer the word spiritual uh, rather than the word religion. Uh, simply because um, religion is a good word, but it, it's acquired connotations, um, which then you have to analyze and explain. You know, by the way, the word religion, where, where it comes from, it, it comes from a Latin root, religio, which means to unite. Mm -hmm. 
So we've kind of twisted that a little bit. <laughs> so if you find something that unites the human spirit, the human being, and the human community, that is religion. But but be, as I said, because it's understood in so many different ways, I like the word spirituality in the sense that we are um, all manifestations of spirit, and in that sense, there is a commonality, there's a oneness of existence uh, that uh, brings us together and identifies us with with everything. Okay, I'm going to change change tracks here. What excites you about mathematics right now, in terms of your work and and what you're doing? What's <clears throat> What's that thing that keeps you up at night, that wakes you in the morning, that's the first thing you're thinking of, and it's, it's in, even, even in your most distracted moments, in the, it's in the back of your mind, and you're kind of working away at it. What is, what is occupying you? Well, right now, um, I'm thinking about a problem involving things called L functions. So L functions are an analytic tool um, which... Um, which is the mathematician's version of emergence. That is, you try to understand a global object, and you say, to understand the properties of this global object, I will try to understand it by studying local properties. And if I package together enough of these local properties, then maybe the global picture emerges. So the L function is a way of trying to package local information. And miraculously, the L function does learn, so to speak, about the global properties. Um, so this is a, a theme now that's used in number theory a lot, uh, to, to use L functions as a tool for using um, local information to piece together to, to create global knowledge. Um, L functions also form the glue between uh, structures that are apparently unrelated. They allow you to go back and forth between structures. There's a particular instance of a problem about distribution of prime numbers that I'm very interested in. And um, the, the problem has been solved recently, but by a rather complicated method. And I just have a, a feeling, an insight, that there might be a simpler way to go about it um, and you, uh, and it's done using these family of L functions, and right now I'm trying to f- make that idea precise. Wasn't the wasn't there a recent discovery of the the largest prime number or the new? Uh, there's a new prime number discovered that's I forget how many um, millions of digits <laughs> long. So, am, I, am I mistaken? No, you're not mistaken. Uh, so. Every now and then you hear about uh, somebody discovering a number bigger than what was known before, which is prime. That is, it cannot be factored. Uh, the reason such numbers are interesting is sometimes you can use them as the basis of crypto systems, that is, uh, encryption of information. But in fact, it's a mathematical theorem that there are infinitely many primes. So there is no biggest prime. Whatever number you give me, there'll be a bigger one. Uh, nevertheless, to be able to write it explicitly and do various calculations with it can have some application. So that's interesting. Um, but but prime numbers also are, are being thought of in more and more abstract ways. So there's classically what we mean by a prime number. But the prime numbers I'm talking about in this uh, problem involving L functions are sort of connected to geometric objects called elliptic curves. And so it's in that combination that somehow they're, they're still... They are still prime numbers, but they have some added meaning to them. And it's the distribution of such numbers that, that is, it seems to be a difficult problem um, and which I think might be amenable to a simple solution. Is there a mathematical solution, proof, theorem, that 
you envy that you wish you had come up with? You're like, oh, that's brilliant. I wish I had thought of that. <laughs> I don't know if I would use the word envy. I mean, certainly I admire uh, the work of many mathematicians around the world um, for their brilliant insight. Uh, sometimes, you see, some theorems are unexpected. You know, there is a, I kept telling you that mathematics is a very human activity. So there are big problems that everybody wishes were solved. Um, but they've been open for hundreds of years. And then over the years, what happens is some conventional wisdom starts to develop. So people start to speculate, you know how we're going to solve that problem? It's going to be by solving this other problem and then building this structure and then connecting it to that. They, they sort of try to chart a path from the known to the unknown. After a while, these speculations start acquiring a degree of legitimacy. And people think there is no other way. That's the only way this problem is going to be solved. And then every now and then, um, somebody comes and startles every, uh, the rest of us by solving the problem, but not by this method. <laughs> they, got, they got at it by a completely different method. So that's a moment, it's not envy, it's, it's admiration at that point to say that, look, conventional wisdom is just conventional wisdom. That's all it is. It's, uh, it's not necessarily the way to go. So if there's a problem that is unsolved, you have to be sensible about it, but if you get a good idea, you should take it seriously too and try to develop it. You know, this business about conventional wisdom, um, there was a, um, a, a movie made recently that I, I think is absolutely brilliant, so brilliant that I made all my PhD students watch it. It's called Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> I've seen Kung Fu Panda and it's brilliant. Isn't it it? I, mean, I love it, don't get me wrong. No, no, it's absolutely brilliant. It's not a kid's movie at all. I think it's a really, really profound movie. Um, and so I, I think I can give an hour lecture on well, what... We've got all the time in the world. <laughs> Tell you me see, what's so great about it. See, the it. point is there, they had a serious problem. Namely, they had to defeat this, this uh, rogue warrior. Um, and they thought the way they're going to do it is by getting the best experts, you know, the best students of this master, these fabulous five, they're going to be the ones that... But they were powerless. They tried. They were powerless. He ended up, like, playing with them. He was able to defeat them. And in the end, who was able to defeat them? The person that hardly knew any Kung Fu. And people would laugh that even, is this even a possible approach? The point is conventional wisdom, you know, binds us in some sense to thinking that there's only one way to solve a problem. And maybe the reason the problem is still unsolved is because of that. And the moment we jettison that kind of thinking and keep our mind open to new ways of looking at something, the sooner that problem will be solved. So it turned out this panda who uh, had skills but not the usual ones. He had a way of, of uh, practicing Kung Fu, but it wasn't the usual one. And that was the one that solved the problem. And so that's very important. You see, if you're a PhD student, you're, you're trying to discover new theorems, you get bogged down in, in the conventional way of, uh, of looking at things. Well, if you get bogged down in that, you're not going to discover anything because everybody else has tried it. The only way you're going to discover a new theorem is if you do something different. So you have to put that aside. You know, not disrespectfully, with respect, put it aside and say, can I think of it fresh? And that's the only way you're going to prove something new. You're going to get a new discovery. That's not only in math, that's in anything. You've, you've got to, with respect, put aside other people's ways of looking at things 
and develop your own original um, intuition and way of, way of looking at things. And then you have a chance of doing something that nobody else has done before. You see, if you tell a graduate student, they come to you and say, okay, what do we do in graduate school? Well, you're going to do a PhD. So what's, what's involved in a PhD? Well, some coursework. Yeah, okay, I got that. Uh, then you pass some exams. Okay, I got that. Then you take some more courses. Okay, I got that. And you attend some seminars. Okay, and then you discover something that nobody else has discovered before. And they get floored. <laughs> they say, how am I ever going to do that? That's impossible. But that's, that's the critical thing in the PhD, that PhD thesis, who, uh, where you produce on your own, essentially, something that can be published in peer-reviewed journals. That is what makes or breaks a PhD. And if you tell them that at first, they think it's impossible. But that's exactly where they have to get to. And to get there, you have to, with respect, study what other people have done and the way they're thinking about it. But then at a certain point, put it aside and say, now I have to think about it in my own way. And then you find you can do it. And then you can contribute. That's, a, that's that big psychological hurdle is what one has to get over. Once you get over it, then you realize that, you know, now you understand what how math is done, how anything is done, really, how discovery is made. It's so different than our art, literature, <clears throat> music, where you have to understand the rules before you can break the rules. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and uh, developing your own insight. I remember a long time ago, somebody told me, uh, they were an English student, and uh, they, they told their supervisor they want to study Shakespeare. And the supervisor laughed at them and said, you know, what new thing would you have possibly to say about Shakespeare when there are hundreds of scholars? <laughs> I said, well, if I was that student, I would have said, it's because, you know, those scholars have studied Shakespeare in their way, and I'm going to study it in my way, that I have the potential to contribute something new. We have something new to say. By the way, on this point for, for students, for PhD students, I keep telling them another thing, that uh, you may start with the idea that it's very hard to discover something new, but if you do it successfully, what you will discover is it's very hard to not discover something new. Because knowledge is so rich, you know, certainly in the field of mathematics, is so rich, it's like fishing where you just put your hand in the water and you pluck the fish. It's that rich. You know, the, it's such a rich discipline that once you get yourself into an area, immersed into an area, but preserving your originality and your own intuition, it's hard not to prove a theorem. It seems like an area, to me, from the outside, that knows so much. The body of knowledge in mathematics is enormous. But once you're in mathematics and deep in there, you realize how little... <laughs> is actually known, right. which opens up the opportunity for exactly. all these new discoveries yes. and insights and creativity. Yes, absolutely right. And another nice thing in mathematics, you know, while some of these um, features of discovery are common across all fields, there's some nice things about mathematics that make it unique. Namely, you're not tied to physical reality. You're not necessarily tied to physical reality. So if you're in a subject like physics even, the universe exists. <laughs> But if you're in math, you can create your own universe. Now, you may say, well, why would you want to create your own universe? Are, are, you, are, you, uh, are you doing anything useful or relevant? Well, the answer to that is um, that, in fact, the human imagination has to be let loose to be able to study all possible structures, you see. And now it may be that because you allowed that abstraction to happen, 
you're able to connect two physical things through a path that goes through a virtual space. You see? So therefore, you are talking about in the end and at the, in the beginning and at the end, you're talking about things that do have a physical interpretation, but you go through a path where in between there is no physical interpretation. And that's the power of math. It's abstraction. Abstraction is an amazing tool. It lets you escape physical reality. It lets you define reality. And so that gives you a new power, a new tool. So it's, it's like trying to, for example, understand the surface of a table. Okay, suppose you were a two-dimensional object and you were lying on the surface of the table. It's very hard to tell me this table is circular or, or rectangular. It's very hard. But we as three-dimensional creatures, we're able to look at it from this third dimension. I can tell you immediately, I don't know, with, just by looking at it, what shape it is. Right? So from the, from the point of view of the two-dimensional creature, there is no third dimension. That's imaginary. You see? So mathematics, in a way, allows you to experience, you know, a, higher degree of abstraction, higher dimensions that maybe you will not be able to say have a physical reality. Nevertheless, they enable you to gain insights into physical reality. So that's that's the amazing power of abstraction. Something a little less abstract, <laughs> you do a lot of work in digital security. Can you explain how, how does mathematics play into into digital security in that realm? We, with which which seems to be uh, one of the more important, uh, more relevant to the average person's day to day life. Mm -hmm. From putting in the correct password when you're logging yeah. into Facebook or your computer and realizing you've got twenty three different pins for twenty five right. different accounts and all that. Right. Where does math come into all this? Okay, that's a good question. I mean, let me, maybe I should start by um, throwing a challenge at you first. So you're right, you can remember passwords and so on, but the math comes in in the following kind of context. Um, suppose I give you the following problem. Okay, You and I want to communicate a secret. Okay, We want to say something to each other so that we have... Well, let me take a step back. If you and I know something that nobody else knows, we can use that to communicate secretly, right? So for example, if you and I shared a code, like whenever I say A, I mean W. Whenever I say B, I mean X, you know, so on. Suppose we did that. Then I can, I can talk, others can listen, mm -hmm. I can talk, and they won't understand, but you will understand. Right, it's a simple code that every kid right. makes up these letter right. replacement or, right. or you know, uh, Pig Latin. Exactly, exactly. Now, of course, all of those are easily broken, but, but let's not worry about that for now. The point is that you and I beforehand shared a secret, and therefore, because of that, we're able to communicate securely, so to speak, even when others are listening. Okay, so now I say, okay, now let's, what, let's see what our roles are. I'm a customer, and you're selling pizzas. Okay, I like pizza. And, and, and I want to order pizza. Okay, online because I I, I don't uh, have access to your phone number. Uh, I, maybe I don't have a phone with me, uh, so I want to order pizza online. Okay, now naturally you want to get paid, so you're happy to send me the piping hot pizza mm -hmm. as soon as I give you my credit card number, and you run it through your machine and it approves, and then you'll 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 come over and give me the pizza. The question is, how am I going to give you the credit card number? Well, if you and I sh had shared a secret together, I can give you the credit card number because, you know, the Internet is basically insecure. 
That is, in the sense that uh, um, it's easy to eavesdrop. Okay, so it's like talking in public when right. you send something in the end. So I can send you my credit card number if we have shared a secret, because then I can encode my thing in that secret. The problem is I don't know you, right? If right. I'm if I'm, I'm, I'm talking, you're you're a, exactly you're a person in the pizza store somewhere across the town. Let's say. Uh, now, how am I going to get a say, secret shared with you? So that's the challenge. The challenge is how can you speak in public to a person so that a specific person is the only person in the room who understands what you're saying and you have not had a chance to go and whisper in their ear that this is the secret. How do you do that? It looks impossible. I mean, if you, if you pose this question to somebody, I, I would say their first reaction is it's impossible. Right? Sure. I need to speak in public, everybody listening, but only you will understand what I'm saying, and we have not had a chance to whisper a secret in each other's ear beforehand. Yeah, no, no common ground whatsoever. Yeah. How would you do it? The answer is math. Now, I say it like that just to tell you something about the power of math. I gave you a problem that, and I, I, I give this challenge to anybody, try to solve this problem. And you see that you, you run into difficulties, you know, it looks impossible, but I'm telling you that it's a quite simple problem to solve using mathematics. And that, that and by that, I mean to convey the power of <coughs> mathematics. Sure. Yeah, because you can say, oh, it's simple, it's math, yeah. but that's not really telling me anything right. Right. about the simplicity or how math actually allows this secret conversation to take, take place. place. Yeah. But not just this conversation, but... Millions, billions, yeah. trillions of these conversations. That's right. That if they can all be overheard, for example, to go back to your analogy of, of replacing the letters. And if you and I are having a conversation where you understand the letter replacement and I understand the letter replacement and no one around us does. But if we speak long enough or if we have that conversation with other people using that same, like two or three other people, if enough of those conversations happen, yes. you can start to recognize patterns. Absolutely. Exactly so right. So on the yeah. Internet, when this is happening millions, billions, trillions of times, what's to prevent yeah. Uh, yeah. somebody yeah. from mean, being able to monitor and absolutely. eventually crack the code, decipher yeah. what conversations are taking place? That's exactly right. An eavesdropper can look at the statistical patterns because these mm -hmm. sort of uh, children, childish kind of, um, what they're called Caesar ciphers because apparently they were used at the time of Caesar. So they're easy to break because they don't change the statistical properties. You see, Human language is not statistically random. Some letters are used more than others, like E and M and so on. Sure. So, so you can analyze the frequency of letters, and based on that, if you have the simple substitution cipher, then uh, the statistical properties have not changed. And so the most frequently occurring thing is probably an E, then the next most frequently thing is an M and so on. And if it was pizza, you know, you're going to be able to eliminate things like the words orangutan and things that <laughs> right. pretty much aren't going to right. come up in my pizza order right. and right. look for things that right. often would. Right. Green pepper, mushroom, pepperoni, right. Right. et cetera. Right, right. So, so that you're absolutely right. So you're already down the road of um, the cryptanalysis. You know, this whole business about somebody says they've encrypted something, but can you, by listening to enough of it, start breaking or start finding weaknesses in it? That's exactly the point. That's that's why cryptographers spend a lot of effort in trying to design protocols and algorithms which no matter how much you heard, you don't leak any information. So this original problem, by the way, to solve it, what you use, you use a simple object called a group. A group is a, a mathematical structure. It's a set 
on which there is a, an operation. You can take two elements of the set and perform an operation on them. Sort of, it's sort of meant to abstract the whole idea of addition of numbers, but it's more abstract. So I take what I call a cyclic group, and um, then uh, you and I choose different parameters. We don't tell each other what the parameter is. We agree on the group is published. The generator is published. Everybody knows it. So I take this generator, raise it to my secret and send it to you, and you raise it to your secret and send it to me. And then whatever you send, I apply my secret to that, and you apply your secret to that. And the, the fact is it's like a one-line equation shows you when we finish that process, you and I have exactly the same number. Oh, simple. Yeah, it is simple, actually. It's, it's, if you, as I say, as a formula, it's just one line. Sure. But the point is that I, we have now established a shared secret without, uh, even when somebody's listening, they won't know what the secret is. So I'm sending you this information and you're sending me this information on the internet, mm -hmm. which is weak, which is uh, leaking. That is, people can, can uh, overhear. Mm -hmm. And even if they see everything that we're sending to each other, they can't make out the shared secret. And that's they the, don't have that decoder ring. It's not so much the decoder, it's that, uh, yeah, in a way, it's, it's because of this mathematical operation inside the group is such okay. that it's hard to undo. I can only see the, the, uh, the operation after it's been done, and then undoing that operation is, is computationally a difficult problem. So where does your research come in? Hmm. Now so, that you've explained the, base, the basics of, of digital <coughs> security, cyber security, what are you working on? So some of uh, some of my research is pure math, so it doesn't come into this. So presumably you're asking about the research that has to do with with cybersecurity. So there, then the idea is, what is the underlying group that you're going to take? Now it turns out that the best groups for this um, come from algebraic geometry. So these are groups that are connected with objects such as elliptic curves, abelian varieties. Right now, elliptic curves are in standards now. Many of your smart cards uh, your TTC path, perhaps. Many things now have elliptic curves built in. But our research is about using higher dimensional versions of that, which are called abelian varieties. And it turns out it's, it's, it's computationally orders of magnitude more difficult to work with those. But on the other hand, they're safer. It seems to us that they're safer. And so what we're building is sort of the next generation of public key uh, encryption. Is it the kind of thing that you're talking about building the next generation to make things even more secure, that it's always going to, you're always going to be, or someone is always going to have to be making things better because the mathematics behind cracking the code, for for lack of a better term, yep. and it's, yep. it's a, I understand it's a, I'm using a broadsword to, to, you know, thread a needle, um, that it's always going to have to be evolving just yes. to keep ahead of... Absolutely. For example, uh, people know that if, if we ever develop something called a quantum computer, mm -hmm. it will break all these systems. You know, all your existing smart cards and your banking systems, everything will break. Um, so Just break? Just break, yeah. Now, uh, why, why is, in, in simple terms, why, why well, is a quantum computer... And what because it a quantum computer is able to handle many states at the same time and because of that, it's able to solve something called the discrete logarithm problem in reasonable time, in polynomial time. And the security of all the systems that we're using are based on the difficulty of solving the discrete log problem. And so this quantum computer will, will undo that. 
you know, the problem that we thought is hard, and it is hard by conventional computers, becomes easy on the quantum computer, and so all of your systems are broken. Are we close to creating a quantum So this is, a, this is a controversial point. Some people say yes, some people say no. I myself feel no. Um, but but never underestimate human ingenuity and uh, the march of technology. So we are also thinking about post-quantum encryption schemes. And the one I just mentioned can also be morphed into a, a quantum-resistant scheme as well. Wow. Now my little four-digit password doesn't seem so <laughs> secure anymore. <laughs> Problem is, you know, you can make more and more... Yeah, passwords also is... A, is and a, I know that's the. I know I'm, <coughs> I'm giving the the, the simplest yeah, uh, example, yeah. but for a lot of our listeners, that's going to be the first thing they're thinking of is that password for their right. email account. That's right. So passwords also are undergoing a lot of change, and people are wondering, you know, are passwords the right way to um, to um, do this? So we have um, a spin-off company where we we've sort of uh, tried to answer the following problem. Um, you know now you have maybe you have a hundred websites and you have a hundred different passwords and how are you going to remember all of them? So mo people do one of several things, none of which is particularly a good idea. Either they use the same password, which is really bad because if somebody breaks into one, they can break into everything, or they write down their password somewhere, which is, means if that list is ever stolen, then everything is gone and so on. So we again used a little bit of math uh, to figure out a method by which you only need to remember one password. Um, and using that password, you can reconstruct all of your other passwords at the time that you need it, uh, using a little bit of mathematics. So the point is mathematics constantly keeps coming into these questions. There's no end of these kind of problems that people will ask. If you hang around um, electrical engineers and uh, computer scientists, they will tell you new and newer kind of situations where they need a, a protocol or an algorithm, and you have to come up with with something, and it always comes back to using a little bit of math. Have you ever thought of turning to evil? You, <laughs> I say that, and you raise one eyebrow, which is a nice touch. But to, this is an incredible power. I mean, have you, it would be very easy, I would think, for you to become Lex Luthor and, <laughs> and you know, take over the world. Uh, somehow that had never crossed my mind. <laughs> not even not once. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, but but remember, again, it brings us back to the theme that we discussed once before, namely, technology is the servant of humanity, never its master. And and even math, math is is a uh, you know it's a human activity, but it's it's there to help us enrich our lives and to discover the power of the human spirit. <clears throat> And so, um, yes, you can discover algorithms. You'll always get uh, more and more. Don't put all your hopes <laughs> in in any algorithm. Uh, it will be broken. And uh, it, the the process is endless. It's sort of like an arms race, too. You know, you discover uh, some weapon, and then somebody finds a better weapon, and then somebody finds an even better weapon, and so on. It becomes like that. So uh, in terms of um, uh, information now, the information is a power and a tool. And protecting it becomes very important. But then the more important it is to protect information, the more um, interesting it is for certain people to try to break that. You know? So that's probably going to happen. It's just going to happen all along until we discover our new paradigm. Um, but, uh, but it is there. I think what, it, what uh, your question does raise is the point is that, uh, yes, it, it is a lot of power. 
when you're playing with these kind of things. And therefore, that's why it's also important to develop ethics. You know, anybody who studies uh, advanced technology must also develop an ethical sense. Um, and that's why, by the way, I, I want to point out that there is a big role in our educational system for the humanities and social sciences. Uh, I know that uh, some people have noticed that there's a decrease in enrollments in these subjects and everybody wants to study STEM subjects. I understand STEM subjects are really moving really fast, but um, you can never lose sight of your humanity. This is extremely important and that's why I think no matter how much uh, other things you study, you must have this kind of integrated education where you study some humanity and some social science. We, st we discussed earlier about the dangers of, you know, just making numerical predictions about this and that. You still need the humanist or the social scientist to interpret what that means. Um, and so uh, I would say that's an important part of anybody studying advanced technology. You must have also courses in, in ethics, um, social responsibility. Uh, well, it's, I mean, you just like to look at enrollment at U of T. Not every student who's in a math course is a math student. I think one in something like one in seven U of T students at some point is taking math courses, and that's from across the university. So they could be an English student, they could be an engineer, they could be uh, in medicine, law, wherever. They could end up in a math course or two or three or four and not necessarily be a math student. That's right. That's absolutely right. Because there's a recognition that math does have a role yes. outside of pure mathematics and, yes. and applied mathematics. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. We've talked about a lot of different areas of mathematics, a lot of different areas of how the Department of Mathematics here at U of T is not only doing mathematics research, but uh, mathematics pedagogy. Is there a broader approach that the department and that the university is taking or can be taking to applying mathematics? Yeah, I think there is. Um, so this is a, a pet project of mine and I think also of the department, namely to establish a center for applied mathematics. It's sort of to, there is, um, uh, there are pockets of activities in applied mathematics in the department, but to crystallize that and to bring it into shape and, uh, and integrate it, uh, through a center, I think would do a lot to stimulate more work and activity in applied mathematics. Applied mathematics is, is, is important partly because for two main reasons. Partly it's the window or the portal through which the university and the world outside gets to know about mathematics. Uh, I wanted to have like a one-stop shop where people can come and say, you know, I'm interested in these kind of problems, but we're running into this issues. Is there anything mathematics can help us with? Um, that could be a meeting place for that kind of thing. It could be a meeting place where government comes and says, um, you know, in terms of our policy direction, you know, uh, what does, uh, uh, here are the kind of problems we're facing. Is there any mathematical insights that you could uh, share with us that would be relevant for this? So that's one part, how the outside world relates to mathematics. But then there's also the part about how mathematicians relate to mathematics. Namely, it's important to sort of be broad in our perspective. You know, I, I have certain problems I like to work on, I'm working on them, I'm pretty successful at it, I can continue doing that. But outside around me there's a world uh, which is just creating new kinds of challenges. And maybe if I pay attention to that, Maybe it'll give me new insights into my pure research, you know. And I've often found this, by the way, in, even in terms of my own work on uh, cryptography, I found 
that uh, through that I come back with questions in pure mathematics that could have been asked a hundred years ago, maybe not solved a hundred years ago, but they could have been asked a hundred years ago, and nobody did. Why? Because the, the question occurred to me because of a particular application context. So the application context has the ability not only to for the application itself, but to raise questions to the researcher, which which I can take away and which actually have nothing to do with the application and that can be studied as, as a pure math problem. So it stimulates the field of pure mathematics too. So for these two reasons, uh, I want to try to create this uh, Center for Applied Mathematics, both for a way, a portal by which the outside world can interact with mathematics, and also as a way to re rejuvenate, to re-energize questions in pure mathematics. Are there other centers for applied mathematics that this would be comparable to in the world? Are there universities, for example, that have places like this that are essentially a brain trust? Yeah, yeah. So. So Princeton has one, Berkeley has one. Um, I would say those are sort of our models. Uh, the best applied math school in the world maybe is the Courant Institute in New York. Um, there are others that have tried before us, uh, and I think we will, we will learn a lot of lessons from them. But the ones we want to emulate is now uh, those which are headed more towards applied mathematics as it manifests through information. Information seems to be the new, new uh, medium through which many, many problems are being formulated and solved and uh, uh, proposed. And so that is, uh, that is what we want to develop. So we will take the best of these kind of institutes at Princeton and uh, uh, New York and uh, Berkeley, uh, but also learn from older institutes you know, to understand that, the, that it is no longer questions about ballistics or uh, fluid mechanics, classical fluid mechanics, you know, or computational fluid dynamics. It's, it's more about the more modern questions that these are taken mainly cast in the form of information problems. Now this reminds me as well that there's another initiative that I know that the department is is really putting a lot of attention to and it's how do we bring in mathematics students, the, the, the high school students that are mm. the ones who will become the leaders in the field of mathematics, the ones who will make this Center for Applied Mathematics the, on the same level as a Berkeley or a Princeton. <clears throat> There's, in addition to, you know, summer camps and that sort of thing, you're working very hard in terms of recruiting right. high school students. And that's right. that's not easy. It's not easy, yeah. So that's, uh, that's uh, again, a project which is very close to my heart, um, this whole business of outreach. Uh, and outreach actually has two aspects to it. One is to, to bring students here who have an interest in mathematics and to give them special opportunities. It's also to bring young students, very young students, who before they formed an idea of whether they like or don't like mathematics, mm -hmm. to put them in a context where they find you know, they can have fun with mathematics. And discover for themselves, yes. as we talked about earlier. Absolutely. But then there's a... Th a third uh, initiative, which I'm very excited about because I think it'll have the most impact of all of our activities, namely trying to reach students at risk. See, those students who are about to fall off the edge, maybe, who've sort of decided early on in life that math isn't for them. How do we reach them? Um, this means, this is interesting because those students are not likely to come to the university. We have to go to them. 
to go to them and do what? We're not trying to make them into mathematicians. What I want to do is to talk to them in such a way or work, interact with them in such a way that they lose the fear of mathematics. In other words... That's a huge thing, though, isn't it? it that is. fear of mathematics. Absolutely. Because I know adults even today, yeah. Yeah. and even myself to a certain degree, fears mathematics. Yeah. So fears, you know, are usually created by some sort of traumatic experience that we have early in life. Not always, but some, that's one way. Of. I was hit by a ruler. <laughs> that's what it was. So so if we can go to that level and um, and help students to see that you may or may not take this as your vocation or your profession, but there's nothing really to fear about this. It's about the same level of difficulty as any other kind of uh, academic challenge that you may be um, that you may be interacting with. So uh, if we can do that, then I think we will have huge societal benefit from that kind of activity. The university may not benefit, the department may not benefit directly in the sense that those students may not come here, but overall we will benefit because if we reduce this level of fear and anxiety amongst uh, students and their parents, uh, then I think we will have uh, done real service to the, uh, to the um, um, community as a whole. So we are approaching this through our outreach coordinators, very, very uh, talented person. Uh, we're approaching um, community centers uh, where people congregate and uh, say that we will work with community leaders to see if we can develop programs by which we can uh, um, help those who are at risk, who are about to say that math is not for me or I'm afraid of math or whatever, to sort of just be, uh, give them a different perspective. We're not going to get 100% success, of course, but but if it, we can at, reach, at least reach out to some of them and uh, help them to realize yeah, math is not for me, but there's nothing to be afraid of yet. If I if I I can do a little bit, and and if I if I need more, I know who to ask. I know how to get help. You know, at least that much right. level of comfort, uh, I think, is very very important. And is it the kind of thing where you would be having students, our students, U of T students, in those community centers, running like after school programs, sort of thing, or assisting with them to to kind of. So not only are we helping the the students, the children in the community centers, but we're also helping our students here at U of T have experience passing on their knowledge. And I find oftentimes the teaching of something actually makes you understand Absolutely. it better. Yes, you hit all the right points. I mean, the point is, look, as you, you correctly said already, we're teaching one in uh, seven students at U of T is taking a math course. We have a little army here. So why not unleash that army, you know, on the problem? And uh, and the second point you made is you learn best when you teach. You see, you when when responsibility is thrust on your shoulders, that's when you make the most progress. So these students, these fourteen thousand or so students, well, they may not be mathematicians yet, but they certainly have mastered enough mathematics to be able to get into U of T. Uh, so that's a certain degree of competence. So they can go and help others who are coming up after them. And as I said, that whole process of community engagement uh, uh, is a kind of experiential learning. You know, you're teaching, but you, you end up learning more and you get more confidence. And I think it'll eventually help them in their own studies too. So that's the grand scheme. The grand scheme is to take what others may see actually as a disadvantage, namely the huge numbers of students that we're teaching and turn it into an advantage and say, 
you know, you've come this far, you've already achieved a certain degree of uh, competence in mathematics. Why not help those who are coming in after you? Um, and uh, through community engagement, we, uh, we, we engage them to, with those students at risk. Uh, nowadays, the university gives you um, co-curricular credits. You can mm -hmm. actually get a credit on your transcript for being engaged in that. So it, it is something that, will, uh, um, that you can point to for future also. So it's kind of very practical. So not only are you becoming a better mathematician by teaching, you can actually look at your co-curricular record and say, not only that, but I have a piece of paper that says yeah. I've done this, yeah. and that is a value yeah. in the real world when CVs and resumes yeah. uh, become important. Absolutely. And remember, you know, how important communication is. Communication is, we remember we talked about this before, that uh, you you can you can you should not allow yourself to get lost in your formulas to the point that you lose the ability to communicate, and that's what teaching helps you you know to to communicate because something may be obvious to you it's not obvious to the person you're trying to teach and so you've got to communicate somehow you have to understand their point of view and communicate something, and that I think is also a very important part of learning being able to communicate. You know, I did this experiment when I was teaching calculus for specialists, math specialists. So these guys don't want to do anything but math. Right. <laughs> They're there for a reason. So I said, well, you know what? You're going to have to write an essay. <laughs> <laughs> I gave them an essay assignment. And they hated it at first. But but my point was well, that... Wait, what was the assignment, though? What so, was the essay on? So I gave them a couple of papers you mm -hmm. know, that they could go to the library and find. Take one of those papers, read it, and explain it. So it's a kind of mathematical essay, but, mm -hmm. but you have to use words. Another thing I insist on is you don't scribble some symbols and you know, say that's a full sentence. You need to make full sentences. It has to be grammatically, it's marked on grammar too. It has to be grammatically correct, and you're explaining it to your peers. You read a paper, your fellow student didn't. You write in such a way that now your fellow student will pick up your essay and read it and now get an idea of what was in the paper. Can't you do that? You see, so that's basic communication. In a form of teaching, in a sense. Absolutely. And so uh, people wondered, you know, why are you making us do this? And I came into math to avoid writing essays. I say, you can never avoid the importance of communication. You see, you can be very, very brilliant, but somebody has to understand what you're saying before the, your brilliance will be recognized. And so you can never escape this. Communication is very important. So that's another thing these guys are going to learn who go into the community, learning to communicate. And they're learning to communicate something that they like. Uh, and uh, and by the, in the process, they're going to help students also get to like that. So I think it's win-win for everybody. That's another episode of Planet Arts Eye in the Books. Thanks to my guest, my new math guru, Kumar Murthy who, while making me appreciate math more, hasn't made me dread doing my taxes any less. Planet Arts Eye has been brought to you by the letters A and S at the University of Toronto. I'm Barrett Hooper. Thanks for listening.